Names have been changed to protect the innocent. This is episode 414. My name is Klaatu. We are going to take a break for a moment from our review of packages installed with Slackware, which we've done the previous couple of episodes, well, for a long time. But um, we've been going over GCC, and I just felt like we've been going through binary after binary after binary laundry list of binaries. I'm going to take a step back for a moment, as I like to do every couple of episodes. I just kind of kind of chat. But this is um, relevant to what we've been talking about, in a sense. I found a blog post by Paul Biggar, B-I-G-G-A-R, on a site called Darklang, D-A-R-K-L-A-N-G. Now, I'm going to admit, I don't know what Dark Lang is, and I don't know who Paul is. It's, this is a random article on the internet that I found, as you sometimes do. I read it because it seemed like it could be insightful, and it ended up being very insightful. And, and I want to talk about it because it is about, broadly, the subject of choosing a programming language. And that's, that's right up there with choosing a Linux distro, especially when you're new to the scene. You break into the scene and you're thinking, okay, I've chosen my distro, that only took three years for me to sort out, and now I'm ready to start programming. Which, what should I do? Where should I look? And that's a tough call, it honestly is. There's a lot, that's a, it's a very weighted question, that one. Just the same as the distro question. Because you're asking this sort of generic question, which has implications far into your future, and is entirely subject, well, not entirely, and is largely subject to your just personal preference. But you're asking the internet under the assumption that someone out there knows the best one for you, and and somehow you'll know when you hear it, which, trust me, you probably won't. So choosing a programming language is a big deal whether you're new to programming or whether you're experienced but you're starting a new project. Because sometimes one language that was right for one thing isn't necessarily right for the other thing. And that's kind of where it all starts, to be honest. Because in theory, you could say, well, any reasonable programming language will be able to do any reasonable task. Like, I shouldn't have to change programming languages just because today I want to write a desktop application and tomorrow I want to write, and by tomorrow I mean in several months, uh, I want to write a server application or, or whatever. You know, today I want to do a graphics and then I want to do a an audio. Today I want to do um, something for for this market Tomorrow I want to do something for that market, whatever. You, you shouldn't have to change everything just because you have, because everything you do isn't, isn't the same every single time. So, however, there's a reality to programming languages, and I guess part of that is what we're going to talk about now. I'm going to kind of um, step through some of this article because um, it's an interesting journey. I'm not going to read it or anything, but, um, well, I'll read bits and pieces of it, but it's a very interesting interesting journey. So apparently Paul um, chose a programming language. And as I said at the very front, big start of the episode, I I'm not going to refer to the actual language because that's not the point. Uh, and I feel like naming the languages may sort of introduce a, a weird bias either to this topic or later in life to a programming language. So we're just going to call it programming language. And so he chose this programming language 
several years ago when he was embarking upon or when he was building this this site, the Darkling, which I, I understand is some kind of interactive programming thing. I think I'm not sure, but uh, and again, I've I've kind of purposefully ignored a lot of the details here because I, I don't need to know what Darkling is. I don't need to know anything about this programming language that he's that that he's talking about. It's it's broader than that. It is bigger than the details. So, he says, he chose programming language because it's a high-level language with static types, so easy to make large-scale changes as we figure out what the language-slash-product was. And he's talking about the, the product being um, the Darklang or whatever. Uh, he says, you mostly model data with some types, which in my mind are the best way to model data. It's very similar to the language I wanted to build. Um, in particular, we could reuse built-in immutable data structures. It had a reputation for being high performance, which me meant that we could write an interpreter for our language and not have it be terribly slow versus writing an interpreter in something else, which might be too slow. And he says at the end of, of those sort of benefits, he says, unfortunately, as we've built our language, we've run into significant problems that have made it challenging to build it with this 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 language that he's that he's basically leaving. He's leaving a language because it wasn't performing for him in the way that he had hoped. And um, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. But he's going to tell us why, and that's the real selling point of this article. So first of all, he says lack of libraries. Uh, he says when you bet on an off mainstream language, one of the things you accept is that many libraries are not going to be available, and and that boils down to essentially what I was saying in episode 407 or 409, or maybe both, talking about when you don't have the community, when you don't have that critical mass to build things that you don't realize you need yet, then when you need them, they're not there. That's, that's the reality of distributions. It is the reality of programming languages. And you choose a language today, and you think, well, it's got everything I need. Like this, this example article practically writes my program for me. I'll just copy and paste the code. I'll tweak it a little bit here and there. I'll add some of my own classes to to get what I need actually done. And and I'm that's it. That's all I need. And maybe that does work at first, but later in the life cycle of your project, you realize it would be really great to interface with such and such, and there's no library for that. So if you want to do that, you get to develop that library. Well, you're not prepared to develop and maintain a library to, I don't know, access um, something over the network. So what do you do now? You have to just wait for a library to appear? Or maybe there is a library. Maybe you did a cursory check, and you think, okay, well, it looks like it's got everything I need today, and if I ever decide to take this to the network, then I see here that there does appear to be one that exists. It was built in, tw in 2009, and it's numbered 0.0.1, and it hasn't been updated since 2011, and it's still on 0.0.1. That's probably good enough, right? No, that's not good enough. Um, that, that sort of thing is what gets you into trouble. So he, he talks a little bit about that, and I think that's a a good, uh, that's, I think, all that really needs to be said about that. Um, I'll write that down. So, lack of libraries. That's a, all of these are a little bit negative because he's explaining why he's not using blank language anymore. 
um, maybe I'll, I'll try to put a positive spin on them at the end of all of it. So then he says, learnability. He says, um, I'm mostly in the camp that anyone can learn any language, but I saw a team struggle with language, and for good reason. Language tutorials are extremely poor compared to other languages. They're mostly lecture notes from academic courses, uh, and the compiler isn't particularly helpful, certainly compared to other languages. Often it gives no information about an error, Syntax errors typically say syntax error, though it will try to give a good error for a mismatched brace, often incorrectly. Type errors can be a real burden to read even after three years of experience with it. Wow, well doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, in the previous two episodes, I feel like I must have complained about poorly written error messages several times. Because, I mean, whether it's a compiler or a command, those error messages, those are important. They're valuable tools to enable people to learn and, um, and and grow with your project. And when they're not good, it slows people down and it potentially just kind of squashes what they're doing, honestly. Like, if you don't have a good error message, in, in, in many ways, I mean, I guess what's happening probably, I'm, I'm imagining, I, mean, I guess what's probably happened is that people are finally, ha- have figured out over the years that they can do, that they don't have to try at error messages because if someone sees an error message, they'll just search for a solution on the internet and run into the lots of other people who've had the exact same error message word for word, and that will sort it out. And you and I probably, I imagine you probably have seen this. You and I both know that 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 works ninety, you know, seven, ninety-five, ninety percent of the time. Um, but there are there are those other times that it doesn't work. Either you you search for this, the exact message and you get the wrong answer, the wrong solution, or you get a right solution for something that was true back in 2015 but not so much true anymore, or you search around and no one else has had the problem at all, or you search around and you realize nobody's using this language at all, or this compiler, or this application, or this command, or whatever. So, yeah, those error messages are important. And, and learnability in general is important. If the tutorials for your language or command or project, application, whatever it is, if the tutorials out there are not helpful, then then you're slowing down adoption. It's tough to do helpful tutorials, I think. Uh, and I think a lot of times helpful tutorials mean lots of tutorials, or they they at least mean in part lots of tutorials. Because, I mean, they also have to be... You know, it's better when they're well written. But I often look at like man pages and uh, programming language documentation, and I just I I very frequently wonder like what was preventing the person who was writing this from giving a minimum viable example. Just just throw it in there. Just put it in there. Just like um, what was it? GC was it GC analyze? Might have been GC analyze or something like that where the man page actually had, like, a little three-line, five-line Java application code that you would you could dump into a text file, run, and that would produce the test dumps that you require in order to see the tool in action. It was brilliant. It was, it was brilliantly done. Like, I'd, I've never seen anything like that before, and... And it was just such a huge help. And and you just kind of wonder why that doesn't sort of happen more often. Um, things like the socks command. They have a great man page. I mean, it's a complex application, it's a complex command, but they have so many examples sprinkled throughout. It's just, it's really, really nice. 
um, and it's really, really important. Okay, another thing that's important, he says, is tooling. Tooling is something I read would be good in language. I remember reading there was a debugger that could go back in time. I don't know where that's gone, but I've never heard of anyone using it. We've struggled to make um, editor tooling work for us. That for, work for us. This is partially uh, because we also use some other um, markup language or something, or maybe it's a language, and this seems to break things. Unfortunately, this is common in programming, but even more so in small communities. You might be the first person to ever try to use a particular configuration. Finally, the disconnect between the various tools is immense. You need to understand, you know, all of these different components to get something working, um, and you could do that um, yourself. But I mean, it's it's obviously then you're tackling a problem that that you would rather not have to be tackling. So tooling by by tooling, he's talking about, for instance, IDEs and and just support throughout the sort of the life cycle of the programming language that you're using. So. Some applications, for instance, well, some applications have great IDEs that practically write the program for you. Maybe not quite that, that to that degree, but I mean, they they're very helpful. They're very useful. They they take care of a lot of the minutia for you. That's nice. Some programs have, or some programming languages have really nice compilers that tell you lots of great information and can call on, can rely on other tools to make sure things are getting taken care of. Can uh, maybe pull down dependencies before compiling happens, whatever. That's really nice. Some tools have really great tools for packaging things up. I mean, we just were doing uh, FastJar and GJar in the GCC-Java thing, and and that that's really, really easy. I mean, it gets more complex the more libraries you add, so don't don't have the illusion that it's always going to be as easy as a, a one a single FastJar command, but... but it is really easy, uh, and I think it's it's a quite a lot easier than um, well a lot of other languages that don't really provide that infrastructure. Now there might be other tools for other languages that do, which is great. And and Go had that really cool sort of Git module. No, not Git. Go mod init, where you where it's part of the command that you're ultimately going to use to run the program to also give yourself that boilerplate. Uh, infrastructure that you'll require to work on the work on your project, so that's really cool. And those are that's all wrapped up in the tooling aspect of things. And the confusing thing about uh, the tricky thing about tooling, I think, is that you don't know exactly what you're going to need until you start needing it. So I mean, there are some things that I I feel yes, you can kind of predict that you're going to need that sort of you know a certain thing like packaging you know that eventually you're going to have to package up your code so as long as you have that sorted then then you can feel good about that that end step but i think a lot of times we defer worrying about for instance the end step until we get to the end step and we think well, well i'll figure that out when we get there which is you know that's one way of attacking things and sometimes it's almost the way you have to attack a thing because you just don't know what you're going to be up against, and it doesn't always pay to to figure it out in advance. Because you might figure out, oh, this this thing, this this workflow will totally work for me, and then you realize that there's some other component that needs to be involved that doesn't fit in with that workflow. So, I get that, but I think a lot of times we do we, we don't know what tooling we're going to require until 
we realize we require it. And that might be something just as simple as, oh, all of my documentation is in this format. I thought I'd be able to export it really easily to that format, which is completely integrated with the build process. It would make this whole process really easy. And now I'm discovering that I can't do that. It might be something as complex as um, how do I manage all of my dependencies or how do I ensure that my application is going to get packaged up or that I have all the IDE plugins that I need or, or oh my gosh, now I have contributors that I, and I never expected to have contributors and they're all, some of them are using this other platform and what kind of support is out there for that platform and so on. So tooling is an important sort of meta part of a programming language that needs to be considered. He says, language problems. Um, the development of languages is something that affects the users of a language. And I think that's, um, that's a pretty big deal. Unfortunately, it's one of those big deals that I feel is just kind of, it's, it's basically a reality of programming. There's always the next version just around the corner. And so you're going to pretty much perpetually question whether you're using something up-to-date enough or possibly too up-to-date. Maybe you're cutting it too close to the bleeding edge. Maybe you are maybe you need to back off and use something a little bit more stable feeling. Oh, but there are these all, all of these new features just around the corner. And it's just going to go on and on. I mean, that'll never go away. But I do feel like um, the development of the language, you do kind of want to develop a feel for that and kind of get a pulse for that project on on what kind of, what's their general, what's their philosophy as they're developing a language? Are they willing to break things? Are they willing to, are, are they rather conservative and do things continue to work the same way for a very long time? Is there a lot of backwards compatibility? Are they looking to completely change a language in the next version? Is the next version actually on the horizon, or is it just something they've been talking about for the past 20 years? It it's, it's something, I don't know how big of a deal it is. It probably differs from, from case-by-case you know, case case basis, I guess. But it is something to think about and to look at before you settle on a language. And I know that, for instance, C++, there was a really awkward time where... C++, what was it, 11? It was just around the corner, and you'd, you'd install all the boost libraries, or you'd use the GCC-STD equals, what was it, X11 or 0X11, or I forget the notation for it now, but yeah, I mean, it was it was a thing that you would do. And and then boost would get updates that would that would change things, and it, 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 there was always kind of a, an awkwardness to it, but but it was a very, it was kind of relatively a brief moment. But I mean, if that was the moment that you were looking at that language, then then that would have, that that might have had some kind of effect on what you chose. Um, I mean, C++ has kind of been around long enough that I think you could probably have a, a high degree of, of confidence in it. But I, I do think that, like, it could have still affected the your development environment. And maybe that would be something that you would have to look at. I don't know why I'm disguising some programming languages, but then openly talking about others. Um, I'm not really sure, but uh, I guess I just feel like some of them are, are beyond reproach. You can't doubt C++. You can't doubt Java. Um, I mean, you can. Totally, you can. I'm, I'm just, I guess I just don't feel threatened by mentioning those. It's weird. Um, anyway, minor annoyances, Paul says. He says, um, one of my biggest annoyances was how often language 
folks talk about fancy type system problems instead of how to actually build products and applications. In other communities and similar languages, people talk about building apps and solving problems. In this language, it feels like people spend an awful lot of time discussing um, like programming constructs. It's not quite at the level that I perceive in some other language world, but it pointed out that the people building the core of the language don't have the same problems that I do, which is building web stuff. So that's obviously Paul talking there. Um, but I, I think it's a really, really great, great point. Um, and he calls this a minor annoyance. Um, I think I would call this like relatability. And, and that's a significant thing because sometimes the core team of what you're sort of looking at, what you're looking to potentially uh, develop a relationship with, sometimes that core team just isn't in the same place that you are, and they they may not intend to ever be in the place that you are. And that's okay. Like, that's not a negative thing. I, I, I complain frequently, I think mostly to myself, but maybe I complain publicly here on my show, I complain frequently that, for instance, CentOS. Yeah, I, th I think I've I've mentioned this recently now because CentOS Stream is supposed to be sort of the the stable Fedora, right? I mean, that's kind of uh, that's not their words, but that's kind of my interpretation. That's my take on it. it. It's and their take is the it is the middle ground between Fedora and RHEL. So what is that if not stable Fedora or or um, adventurous RHEL? And I. I complain frequently that CentOS just doesn't, as a stable desktop, Linux desktop, it, it doesn't seem to be interested in being a general use OS. It still seems very focused on being exactly one thing, which is a really solid OS for your servers. And that's really exciting, and that's great for, for people who need that single use case. But w what if what if I wanted to entertain the idea of some kind of media production based on CentOS? How hard would that be? I think it would be, you know, you'd be very much on your own because the core around, uh, of CentOS, the core, I guess, isn't around something, but the core team of CentOS, the core focus of CentOS isn't that, isn't the thing that you are trying to do. And so if you were to, to, take that on, then you would be building your own packages and your own dependencies of packages and so on. Which you can do. It's just now you're messing around with, with sort of creating a distribution when you were actually meant to be messing around with fun, cool multimedia apps or whatever the task happens to be that you're doing. And and it's the same with a programming language. Like, there's no... It's not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. It, it is just a difference of, it's a difference in focus. So we, we're left with five five concerns or five things that, that one might want to consider when looking at a programming language. And those five things again are, let's just say, I'm going to try to spin it in more of a neutral tone. Not that I blame Paul for his tone. I'm just saying he he is very much coming from this as a, as an, uh, as of you know, from a place of, well, I have decided to leave a thing, and here is why. So I'm taking a different approach, which is, what should you consider before you enter a relationship with a programming language? One, libraries. What kind of library support does it actually have? Look at the language, look at what kind of li libraries exist for it, and what kind of libraries are being developed for it. And look at the state of those libraries. Make sure that those things are 
are up to date and actively developed. Because if they're not, they may not be what you, you know, they, they may as well not exist, essentially. If, if they're not what you're looking for, then they may as well not exist because they're not going to, they're not going to do the thing that you need them to do, potentially. The next thing is learnability, especially if it's, as, as Paul says, an off-mainstream language. What kind of, I guess what, what this really almost boils down to in a way is support. Well, maybe not support because I guess training, you know, like learnability, training, like what, what kind of resources are out there for you to learn from, but also for other people to learn from because, I mean, presumably, very frequently, an open source project is open source because there's a some kind of expectation that at some point someone else other than you may contribute code to this project and if it is very niche then you could have problems because people won't know how to contribute and to some degree that might be okay because a lot of people are willing to learn a new language but then again if there's no way for them to if there's nowhere for them to go to learn the language then that's going to obviously impede their their contribution now i will say very significantly here that the that the inverse is not necessarily the the cure all if you write in a very popular language that does not mean that people are going to flock to your project and throw code at you I, I speak from experience. Tooling is is the next one, and that that's sort of the scaffolding. Like, what kind of what kind of tools do you have available outside of the language to make working with the language pleasant? That's an important important thing because, well, first of all, it just might make your life a lot easier. And it, it you know even if you're not really into the whole IDE thing, even just just the simple simple thing as like syntax highlighting. Like, if the thing that you're choosing doesn't have good syntax highlighting, then there could be lots of errors that you don't catch right away. And then if the compiler isn't terribly helpful, then there may be a bunch of errors that you don't catch even after a, or during a, 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 um, a failed compile. Or, or an interpreter, when it's running your code, it might, it might give you an error message that sort of misleads you. I mean, a classic one might be detecting a, um, you know, a lack of a semicolon, or, or not detecting a lack of a semicolon, uh, saying that, I don't know, a, a data type isn't valid in this particular position. And so you, you pull your hair out trying to figure out what's wrong with that data type. Do I need to typecast it? Do I need to, do I need to convert it into something else? Well, no, the actual problem is that you forgot the semicolon, and so it's reading two lines is one line, and it doesn't make any sense. But, but that's only because there was a missing semicolon. And you, you sometimes, you just wish that, oh, if you'd only just told me somehow, if you'd known that there was supposed to be a semicolon there, that would have been so much, use, for, so much more useful. So tooling, it's important. Language issues, that is the development of the language. I mean, that's really, really important. And it doesn't seem like it would be that important because languages just exist, right? Well, no, they're, they're actually developed by other humans. And whether, whether the humans just are really unpleasant people and you don't want to be anywhere near them, or whether they're really stubborn people and just have really weird ideas about how their language should work, or whether they're scatterbrained people and they decide to branch uh, their own language off into two branches because they suddenly had an idea of a different way, but everyone else thinks it should go a different way, so there's a parallel universe, or whether they just iterate on their own language, and you have great expectations for something that's really, really, truly great, and, and 
advances the language and when you look at it you realize that it's really just becoming more pedantic and um, even actually maybe even more complex than it ought to be. Who knows? There are lots of different possibilities. The point is that these are these are issues that you want to look at. And yeah, I'll I'll leave it there for a moment. It's a, it's an issue that you want to look at. You want to look at the sort of stability and the the life the the lifespan of the language that you may or may not be choosing to use. And then finally, relatability. And that is, what does the language think it's about? And that's a tough one because some languages are convinced that they're about everything. They're the they're the the end all and be all of programming. You don't need any other language than 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 their language. And again, strictly speaking, they're probably correct. Like, you could do all of the things that you need to do with their language, because it's a programming language. It's designed to tell computers to do things. So if you sit down and write a bunch of libraries and and contribute code back to the language itself and, and any number of, of monumental tasks, then they're probably correct. Their language is the only language that anyone would ever need. Um, but that's really not why most people get involved in languages. It's usually because they're looking for a thing to make their idea possible. And your investment in a language is focused on your idea. Everything in that language should work for you to make your idea possible. In an ideal world, you wouldn't have to stop, back up, write your own library, add a new class, extend it a class, borrow some stuff from another thing, cobble it all together, reinvent some stuff, and then continue building your idea. Nobody wants to do that. The idea, the, the, the point is to just build the thing that you had in mind. And you want a toolkit. You want a thing with all the parts of your idea already in it. It's just nobody else had thought to put those parts together in exactly the way your idea requires. But once you put them together in that sequence and in that order, then suddenly you have this cool new thing that you have built all thanks to this language. And as I say, I think the danger here is that most languages pitch themselves as that, a toolkit with all the components you need to build your singular, unique idea. But a lot of times what they're actually saying is we have all the raw materials that you could use to build the structure upon which you could create a scaffolding in which you could then build your idea. And the reality is, is that that's, that's a lot of work. And it may or may not be a lot of work today. You know, it might be fun today to implement your own library to do the thing that you need to do. Like, that might actually be pretty cool. You, you've never done that before. But this language makes it so easy to do, like, why not do it? But then you realize that once you're finished, that library requires updating. It, that library is its own project now, and people expect, or you expect, or technology expects it to grow. And so now you have that to maintain in, in addition to your idea. And, you know, I mean, under in some circumstances, don't get me wrong, that is exactly, I mean, that's just part of the deal. You have a cool idea, other people haven't done it quite the same way before well then you do you get to write your own library or 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 you know you you get to invent a class for the for this thing because nobody else thinks of it that way and so this is part of your idea this is just part of the structure this is within the the sort of the gravitational pull of your idea and so that's that's part of the deal that's fine like that that does happen but i'm i'm just saying sometimes there's no need for that to happen like if you if you look at 
one language next to another, and you realize, ooh, this one has five different libraries all dealing with this thing, and this one has zero libraries dealing with a thing, that might be an indication that it isn't actually your job to write the library for that language. Um, you should just be using this other choice with five options for you to choose from that kind of thing and that's you would do that because you have the luxury to do that you know it, it it isn't that you again it isn't that you can't do something with with a programming language like probably you can and yes you could write your own library and maybe it is your job to write the library maybe that's a contribution you want to bring to the world but at the same time maybe it's not and maybe that's not what you want to choose and so in spite of how confident the language is in itself and its own ability to build up everything that you need from scratch, like that might not be what you're actually looking for. And that's fine. That's part of the reason that you're looking at different languages. That's why you're you're auditioning a bunch of different choices. Because maybe five of them could feasibly do the thing that you want them to do, but there's that one that's halfway there already. And all you need to do is string some things together. That's that may be the language that you want to choose. Now, to be fair, it may not be. Let's go have coffee, and we'll talk a little bit more about choosing languages and and what some of the factors are, sort of from the other angle of, okay, I see a language, I think it is good, I think it's the one I want to use, now what? Let's talk about that. But first, coffee. <laughs> I've had coffee all along, but hopefully you've got some coffee in front of you, and we can now talk about what happens when you make your choice of a programming language. And um, this again comes from an article in this in this series that I'm talking about, uh, and I guess I'll have to link to this, because um, it is an interesting, interesting read. It's just academically, it's an interesting read. Like I have again no knowledge of what this website actually is, and I have very little knowledge of the languages he's talking about. I'd vaguely heard of one of them. No, of, well, I've vaguely heard of two of them, definitely heard of one of them. And um, and they're not typical, They're at least in my world. They're not the ones that you think about. So, so it's kind of an interesting read just to kind of get an insight into, I guess what you'd call, well, what he calls non, what is, off mainstream. So, Let's assume that you've chosen a language. Why would you have chosen that language? Well, I mean, obviously the inverse of all the reasons not to choose it. That would be one thing. So you've determined that there's a bunch of libraries that you like. You've determined that it's easy to learn or, or that it has resources to make it easy to learn. It has good tooling. It has, uh, you have confidence in the way that the language itself has been developed and and that it will continue to develop in a sensible way. And finally, that you find that the language developers or the community or both um, are somehow relatable. They, they, they are kind of working towards similar real-world goals as you. Not, not, not the project itself, for instance, but, but they're not just designing a programming language 
for the fun of designing a programming language or for a philosophical to, to prove a philosophical point of how programming languages ought to be designed, they're designing it for real use case scenarios. But there are other reasons that you might choose a language. Uh, so for his first point, Paul's first point in this separate article, is a little series that he's writing, um, or that he wrote, I should say. It's from uh, August, I think, of 2020. But uh, he says, he says, one thing that um, sticks out in old language is that it made it really cumbersome to use maps like hash tables, associate, yeah, hash tables, associative arrays, whatever you call them. And he says in new language, you have a map bracket, one type, comma, another type, close bracket, and that's it. It's done. So he's just talking about the way that you, the way that you string things or not string things together, but the the syntax of of in this case an array or an associative array apparently but it could be anything and and the idea here is that the the language makes it easy to do things and that's an important concept and not everyone necessarily likes that concept so maybe making it easy isn't the right term maybe the language does stuff you need to do in the way you want to do it how's that because, I mean, you know, if if you came to me and said, hey, choose a Linux distro, uh, how about Ubuntu, because it makes it really easy to do stuff, I would probably admit to you that that's not really what I'm after. I mean, I am a Slackware user. So what what some people define as easy just isn't the same definition as me. And so if I personally don't want to ever have to think about memory address spaces when I'm programming, someone else might think, how could you program and not know where the stuff is? Like, why would you ever do that? That sounds horrible. So easy is different for, for different people. And I guess the real point here is that the things that you don't want to have to worry about, you want your programming language to worry about. The things you want to worry about, you want your programming language to stay away from. And that's an important aspect and it's something that you kind of have to, you have to sort of find the right balance there. Uh, another reason he says is, well, this is the inverse. So he says libraries. He says library support is, is exactly what he needs in this new language that he has chosen. Now here I want to talk about, I want to maybe, maybe go off the path a little bit, but one of the things here that he's talking about specifically is support for his cloud provider. So he's whatever Darklang is, and again, I've, I've purposefully not investigated what that is because I don't want to be influenced one way or the other about these concepts. But whatever it is, I guess it must be running or integrating some in some way with the cloud. And the cloud is a proprietary minefield, mostly. There are exceptions, but a lot of it's... Um, pretty specific to to your vendor your your cloud provider and to interface to all of the cool features that your cloud provider has decided you want your programming language that you're using to interface with it needs to have library support and and needs to be able to interface with with whatever your provider is is giving you and for for the old language that he was using that just didn't exist it just wasn't part of the SDK it just wasn't wasn't there i i i in in a way i really i have a um sort of a an unfair aversion to 
to anything called an SDK anymore. And I, I, I'm being unfair and inaccurate, but for me, in my world so far, SDK has been sort of a code word for an interface on Rails, as it were. I, I don't mean like Ruby on Rails or anything like that. I mean, there has been, it, it's been a, uh, it, it's been indicative. Anytime I've gotten an SDK, it, it, it seems to be sort of this, I don't know, usually an interface strangely into a proprietary technology and, and rather strictly defined. Sort of like, well, this is exactly how we think you should interface with this, this platform or this component. And should you want to do anything else with this component, uh, you can't. So it's just kind of like in this very singular sort of box that, that is open for you to use, but but only on certain terms. And I know that's not necessarily what an SDK is. I guess to some degree it is, though. I mean, it is. It's a software development kit, right? So it's it's look. Here's the here's the sandbox, but we only have. But but the box is only this big. Like you can't go outside of the box because then you're outside of the SDK. So maybe I'm not being so unfair. But but yeah, I, I don't love the concept of SDKs uh, lately. Um, at least not in practice. In theory, I do. I, I think they're great, but but in practice, I've not really been excited by them. And it, it it often seems to be a poor excuse for something not having open source. It just doesn't have the source code available to you. So you get the SDK instead, and you can play around with that with with those things. But but that's all you get to play with. And so a Google cloud or or Amazon cloud or or whatever cloud provider you're you're using may have some kind of SDK or or have an API they may even broadcast it as an open API like that's a big deal because okay so it's an it's an open API in front of something that is completely non-open um and and so you get to use that SDK in the in the way that they want you to use it because it's it's written in a specific language. They're providing libraries for some subset of languages or language, and that's it. That's as much as you get. That's a huge statement if you really think about it. I mean, that's, that's saying that a, a proprietary technology gets to determine your, what, what is a valid choice for your tools. Um, let's say this Paul guy with dark lang had wanted to stay with old language and not switch to new language. I mean, before the coffee break, we've established he didn't want to stay with old language. But let's pretend like he did for a moment. Well, part of the problem here, one of the things that would have driven him away from old language, whether he wanted to leave it or not, and I guess we could extrapolate that this is probably one reason that that he did want to leave old language, because if it is a, if it's a feature for new language, then technically it's a it was something that was missing in old language, is that it couldn't interface with his cloud provider in the way that he needed it to interface, and that's huge. I mean, that's that that's exactly like when I was in several episodes, probably a year or more ago now, I was talking about how you need to audition the applications that you want to use for your project, whatever it might be, and how important it is if you're working with a team for those tools, for those applications, to be open source. Because the moment you introduce a closed source component, well, that's when all of the choice starts to be restricted. Because all of a sudden, this closed component, 
the only option you have is whatever they're giving you. And so no other tool will suddenly work because there's just no opportunity for it to be adapted for that component. And, and you know, I mean, sometimes the reality of it is that even an open source component is going to limit your choice. Because the reality is that you are going to, I should say functionally limit your choice, because the reality is that you're not going to find the time and the, the person hours to, or the, 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 the team to, to develop, you know, an extra library or, or an extra, a new interface or whatever it is to work with this component. So yes, it's open source. Yes, you could theoretically use anything, but in reality, you're not going to, you're going to use whatever they gave you. That's, I mean, probably eight times out of 10, that's the, that's, that's the case. But obviously with closed, it's a hundred percent of the time, like no choice. This is what you're going to be using. And if there is a choice, then it involves a bunch of hacks around, uh, around the issue, which, you know, in a business setting could get you legal, into legal trouble, or, or it could also just, on a practical level, it could just be something that could then change out from under you. Yes, we've got hacks in place. We're working around this issue. Oh, we just got word that the proprietary vendor has changed everything without alerting anyone because they don't have to alert anyone. And so now all of our hacks don't work, and now we have to pivot and come up with something else. I mean, that's not like a theoretical example. That's that's something that I've seen happen very frequently in real life. That happens a lot. Um, and I've seen organizations base way too much, um, w- way too much of their their value really on on something that really, if you look at it too closely, is is yeah, kind of a hack around. Um, you know, someone's proprietary product, and then the proprietary product does a big switcheroo, and it all falls apart. And that could have huge ramifications. So I think that's important to think about of, you know, it's just if if you're interfacing with closed components, whether it's a cloud provider or an application provider or a service provider, whatever, then the choices, the rest of your, your tool chain is now being basically decided upon potentially by that one component. And your your fallback in case of anything happening to that one component are are potentially quite limited as well. So I don't know. You're listening to an open source focused podcast. Surprise, I'm recommending that you don't use closed source services or applications. But I thought it was interesting because I I rarely thought of that in terms of programming languages. You know, you kind of, you look out at the landscape and you see a pretty healthy, for instance, Python compatibility landscape out there. You see lots of proprietary applications. Oh, but they've got a Python plugin system where you can hack on, you can use their libraries and stuff to, to, and you can call them from Python. You practically reprogram the entire application just with, with Python and it all works and it feels very much like open source because you have access to all of these things, but then you kind of realize, well, what if, what if Python isn't the best solution for this job? Well, too bad. That's what you're doing. What if Python doesn't quite fit in with the rest of our, of of our workflow or pipeline? Well, too bad. That's what you have. So it, it is interesting how proprietary stuff can also limit something as as esoteric as programming languages and we have to kind of watch out for that as well so that was um that's all about choosing programming languages i guess it was a really good um little blog series i will link to it in the show notes 
you can read it at your leisure or not. I covered, you know, most of it, but it is, it is a really, like, if you're into the details um, and you do want to hear a little bit more about languages, go read it because, like I say, it's three ser it's a three series articles, one about the language that he left, one about the language that he chose, and one about the language that he almost chose but didn't quite choose because it wasn't quite what he wanted. In a lot of different settings, in a lot of different scenarios, the question of oh, what programming language should I choose, it's a big question. There are lots of factors. I mean, the factors that we've just reviewed, but also there are external factors, like I'm working at a big organization, and this is the language that everyone in this organization knows. This is kind of what we've fallen into, or it's what we have support for, or whatever. And then if you're not at an organization, and you're just starting out at, pro as, uh, at programming, then it's going to be a completely different set of questions. Like, what can I figure out? Like, I go to this page, and they've said this website, and they seem to claim that it's really easy to learn, but then they start talking about um, the Indianness of of the, the the platform, and I have no idea what they're talking about. Or they, they're telling me to install something called GCC, and, and my repository doesn't seem to have that uh, anywhere available because you know you're looking for GCC instead of um, I don't know G plus plus or something like that. Who knows? I'm just making things up. My point is that very few languages advertise themselves as in incapable or insufficient for any given task. That's just not what programming languages usually do. And it's, it's from a place of honesty. They are telling you that they are a programming language and you can use them to program things. Simple as that. And there may be lots of videos and articles about how great a language is for some task, but you want to do a very specific task with whatever it is that you're trying to build. And you have to keep that in mind. And you have to really understand the scenario that you are, that you are up, that, that you're building towards. And that can be difficult if you're new to the whole sort of, okay, I'm going to build something. I mean, it can be really difficult to think about all of the different concerns that you'll have once you've built this thing. And the research can be very deceptive. I think that's probably what I'm really trying to emphasize here in a way, is that you will come across research that claims that you can do exactly what you're thinking of doing with that programming language. But but you want to look at any such claim carefully, not because there anyone's trying to mislead or misrepresent something, but just because they're building what they've built. You're building what you're going to build. And those are definitely two different things. You have different capacity, you have different tolerances, you have different preferences, and so you want to look at that language with that in mind. And you may well want to look at those the, the language and, and maybe even do like a prototype of the workflow. Like take your application from, just, just do it with a hello world thing, which it feels like a cheat. It feels silly to do anything with a hello world, but I mean... I've actually gotten pretty far with Hello World in this in this series of uh, in the D in the development software series of Slackware. There's been quite a lot to go on with just a Hello World application. I mean, we've we've been able to do all kinds of different things with Hello World. So it's actually more useful than you might think. Less useful and more useful all at the same time. I'm just saying, take that Hello World application. If it has to be a GUI application, 
then make it a GUI application. But bare minimum viable, you know, bare bare minimum, not even viable, just your your just a, something that compiles or whatever, and and use it in an IDE or in whatever environment you're using it in. Update it, try a different tool set, analyze the build system, access something on the network or, or whatever, access the peripheral that you want to access, and then deliver it. Package it up. Deliver the whole package. What does that look like for all the all of your target platforms? It, it It could only take, it may only take like an afternoon to do that much research. Like that's not really all that hard technically. If you can't do that in an afternoon or at all, then maybe that's not the right language for you. And of course, my workflow is different than yours, or rather my pipeline, my imaginary pipeline there would be different than yours potentially. Like maybe you don't need to do all those steps. You just need to make sure that you can get that into uh, Jenkins uh, to automatically build and deploy. And, and maybe all of that's, that's the easy part for you. That's the packaging as such isn't even a thing. You just have to make sure that it will build uh, and then deploy to all of your systems. And And what you're really concerned about is compatibility with, I don't know, once again, like network APIs or something like that. I keep going back to network because I've been doing stuff in Java with the network over networks and, and it's been a lot of fun actually, but um, that's that's why that's the example that I keep coming up with. But I mean, it could be anything. Um, and I think that, that that sort of audition is important, but it can also be a little bit deceptive. And so, you know, if you get that far, if you get that if you get far enough along with that and it seems to be like a promising language, you know, then double back and just double check. Do you have all of the, you, does it have all the libraries that you're going to need? Does it, does it appear to have active development happening in the language and in the libraries? Does the, is the toolkit that you're using for the, the GUI, is that well supported? Has it been updated? Is it looking to, update with the the next iteration of the language is that going to break anything is it uh, compatible with is it working well with wayland is it working well on other platforms how easy is it to install what's the install process going to be like for your users and all that other stuff it's it's a lot to think about but at the same time it is definitely something you're going to want to think about before it becomes a thing because the the idea that you can just worry about it when you get there, while while strictly true, uh, that doesn't mean that it's going to be pleasant or that it's going to be all that successful. Uh, and if you have to make a bunch of hacks around installing it on your target platforms or making it uh, something that a normal user can install or whatever the problem is, then then you're going to look back and you're going to think, okay, maybe that wasn't the right choice which happens you know and then it's time to refactor and who doesn't love to do that I mean programmers love to rewrite to re-implement things so it's that's a valid choice you can do it that way but for longevity and sort of stability I think um, a good amount of research up front is important and when I say research I mean experience like actually get in there and try it because if you don't you're just going off of reputation or claims then then you're in for possible surprises. You, you want to actually get in there and try it yourself. That's the, that's the best research. Hopefully that helped. I don't know if it does because I don't know if you're looking for a programming language right now. But if you are, hopefully this has helped. And whether or not you are, if you are into sort of reading about the rationale 
of some of the choices that are made in the on the very technical side of, of these sorts of things. I will link to the articles on Dark Lang so that you can read all about OCaml, F-sharp, and Rust. There, I identified them, but I didn't tell you which was which. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. is now here.